As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Welcome back to Unapologetic, the show that aims to help you understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. I'm Ruth Jackson, and before we hear from today's guest, I'd love to remind you to let us know what you think of the programme by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk, or you can get in touch via our social media. But now for today's show. This is part two of my discussion with Trevin Wax, author of numerous books, including his most recent and award-winning The Thrill of Orthodoxy, which is the focus of this episode. Trevin has also been a guest on our C.S. Lewis podcast, so do check out those episodes. And while you're at it, why not enter our exciting competition to win a copy of Professor Alistair McGrath's seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life. To be in with a chance to win one of these books, visit premierunbelievable.com slash cslewisbook and sign up to our newsletter. The link to this competition, as well as information about Trevin Wax, will be included in today's show notes. So let's hear from Trevin on culture wars, objections to the Christian faith and evangelism. Now, Trevin, we spoke a little bit um, in the last episode about orthodoxy and, and what that means and how we recapture some of that thrill. Um, but I'd love to talk a little bit about uh, evangelism and mission. And you spent some time on the mission field in Eastern Europe, didn't you? What what was that like? You know, I, I don't even know that I could begin to to quantify the the impact or the the the, you know, what it was like to spend so many years outside of my cultural context here in the United States. Um, you know, it was it was really enlightening in a lot of ways because I was I was in a place where um, I was doing mission work in in a cultural setting very different than my own, um, working in uh, in the the city that I lived in, but then also in surrounding villages and uh, learning how to to do ministry in a place where a lot of the 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 things I would have assumed from an American context just simply didn't apply. And I think there's something to be said about doing cross-cultural ministry like that, because it not only opens your eyes to the world around you, but also helps you to have fresh eyes when you look back at the, at your your previous cultural context. You are able to 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 see things that you wouldn't have been able to see before, things that you just assumed that everyone must think or must behave. You you suddenly you look at those practices differently, and so for me, doing ministry and really coming to learn how to do ministry in a place uh, different than my my own context at home was was really very powerful for me and has shaped the way I look at at life and ministry and the culture and my writing and all of that through through the many years since I've been back. 
And I've heard you say that you actually found it more difficult to move back to the States than you did that initial move to Romania. Would you share a little bit about that? Because I know it's it's not a unique experience. I think it was Leslie Newbigin who talked about kind of being a reverse missionary. Um, would you share just a little bit about um, about that? Yes, I, you know, I do think the reverse culture shock is, is real. I've heard other missionaries talk about this. Um, one of the reasons it was harder for me to move back was because my when I moved to Romania, I bought a one-way ticket as a 19-year-old. Mm. You know, I was on my own. I was single. I was, you know, uh, going to do to to study at a Christian university there uh, while I was doing mission work uh, on the weekends and whatnot. And when I moved back, I moved back with my wife of already at that point two and a half years. We had a uh, our first son had already been born. He was a year old. We were leaving her family, and we were leaving. Uh, you know, the life that we had made together there, basically to start over in the United mm -hmm. States. And so it was a, a, a bit of reverse culture shock in the sense that, you know, I was I, I was coming back and there was a sense of sacrifice that way because of all that we were leaving behind. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I would say that that um, there is something that can be very surprising about coming back to your own home context after being away for that long. Uh, so many things change, but then there are also elements that you see differently mm. because of the amount of time that you've spent elsewhere. And do you think that there are sort of universal questions and objections that people have to the Christian faith? Or do you see that there are really quite different questions in different parts of the world? You know, I do see differences. Um, in, you know, one of, the, one of the most famous objections to the Christian faith in the last few hundred years has been the, the problem of suffering. Mm. How could a God who is good and all loving and all powerful uh, be real if he allows so much suffering in the world? Um, I think the brothers Karamazov, um, Ivan, uh, the, the character of Ivan Karamazov in, in Dostoevsky's novel, is pr probably puts together the, the most trenchant expression of this, of this uh, of aspect, this objection to the Christian faith. Um, and yet he, he does so. And, you know, obviously it's a, it's a Christian writer who's putting that very critique in the words of, of that character. Um, so what, you know, I, when we think about the problem of evil, what's interesting is that, you know, before the, 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 uh, 12, 13, 1400s or so, uh, this was not one of the most dominant objections mm -hmm. to the Christian faith. Uh, up until a, a few hundred years ago. So that in itself should give us pause, recognizing that we are formed by certain sensibilities. Um, but even now, looking at other parts of the world, there are we, we, we in the West often love the parts of Christianity that say you're to turn the other cheek. You're to forgive. Uh, no matter the, the, you're not to resist the evildoer, but you're to forgive even, you know, not seven times, but 70 times seven, you know, we look at aspects of that and think, oh, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a beautiful aspect of the Christian faith? There are places in Africa and places in other parts of the world where, for example, some of the views that would be controversial for us, views about, um, sexuality, marriage and whatnot are not seen as as controversial there. Whereas this, this idea of not pursuing revenge or vengeance uh, is, is seen as deeply countercultural, that the, the, the call to forgiveness, to turning the other cheek is seen almost as absurd or as, as, as impractical, or that there's no possible way that that can actually be the, the expectation. And so I think every cultural uh, context, in every cultural context, we have a tendency to, uh, to, to, to brush up against aspects of the Christian faith that seem just almost you know, incomprehensible to us. And 
we have to be in con- connection with other parts of the world in order to recognize that uh, the Christian faith is going to be countercultural at some level, no matter where we, no matter where we are, no matter where we come from. You say in your book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy, that questions are never just questions, that our hearts aren't neutral. What do you mean by that? I think there's a difference between questions that are part of a faith-seeking understanding, where we're asking questions because we want to go deeper and deeper into the Christian faith, or maybe we have some doubts that we're wanting to find answers to and to really think through. Um, I think that's one type of questioning, but there's another kind of questioning that's almost... um, it's almost like an acid that is is eating away at at the the faith and in in ways that um that that are that are leading toward the sort of justification of things that we don't want to be true about christianity so there's a difference between faith seeking understanding and unbelief seeking justification and so you know of, of the serpent in the garden had the question did god really say you could say, well, it's just a question, but it's not just a question, you know. And so the, we we see, a, I think, a difference in the kind of doubt that is like the man who uh, had a, a son who was racked with, you know, the, this this terrible tragedy of of you know being possessed by a demon was being thrown into the fire. And when he sees the Lord, he says, "Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief." He recognizes that there's doubt and that there's challenges, and yet the posture is one of desiring faith. Uh, there are questions that that lead to that kind of an outcome that reveal that sort of heart, and then there are questions that are are really questions that are chafing against the authority of of God, the authority of His Word, the 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 the, the clear the clarity of His Word. And so, I think we've got to recognize that our hearts are not neutral; <laughs> our hearts are often pulling away or, from the truth, and we have to begin to um, not only question Christianity but question our questions to put our hearts under the microscope as we seek to to ask questions about about Christianity and the faith. Now, this is a huge question, but how do you think we begin to respond to some of the big questions of our day? I think we always have to begin to respond, not with speaking, but with listening. Uh, we need to really be able to take... The, 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 it's not merely answering the big questions of our day, but answering the person across the table for us that may be articulating some of those big questions and recognizing the person in front of us and having conversations that go deeper than simply trotting out the answers that we may find in in an apologetics textbook of sorts. Uh, Those can be helpful, but at the end of the day, a lot of times we're talking about um, an emotional resonance that may be there that people may have. uh, uh, on any given subject. Sometimes people are not asking questions simply from an intellectual standpoint, but because of um, past experiences. Uh, We also need to recognize, you know, we could make a case for the beauty and the goodness of the Christian truth and the beauty of the melody of the Christian gospel, Um, but we could could, uh, tend to have a very judgmental approach toward people who may be getting out of the pool of orthodoxy, so to speak, uh, and, and moving away from the church. But we should recognize perhaps one of the reasons that some people leave the church is because the waters themselves have been toxic. I mean, you see the corruption in many churches that, that are uh, uh, there. That can also become an excuse for people to, mm-hmm. to leave the faith, maybe because they haven't been in a bad church experience of their own, but have seen someone else in, of an experience. So I think we've got to go back to respond to the big questions of today. We Yes, we need to fortify our own faith and we need to 
to, to wrestle with some of these questions ourselves. And yes, it's good for us to have a, a good answer prepared for some of these challenges that, that may arise. But at the end of the day, I would go back to something that the, the, the apologist Francis Schaeffer said. Uh, when he was asked how you would share, what you would say if you had an hour to share the gospel with someone, uh, he, he, I think this is something, he said something along the lines of, I would listen to them for 55 minutes and ask questions, and then I would spend the last five minutes sharing the gospel wow. with them. Meaning I would, I would want to make sure that my gospel presentation is, is tailored to the very particularities of the person that's sitting across from him. I think there's something very wise in that, of recognizing that we don't just come with answers. We come with questions for the questioner. You mentioned there lots of people sort of leaving the church, and I guess particularly you know, prevalent, that seems to be young people, it, you know, both in the US and in the UK. How do you think we combat that kind of mass exodus of young people leaving the church, do you think? I think one of the challenges that we face with young people leaving the church is that the air that we breathe culturally is, is an air that really doesn't have much of a place for God. Um, and so the, the environments that we often send children to or that, um, that, that people are growing up in are ones in which God is, if he's there, he's irrelevant. He's over to the side. He's marginalized. He's relegated to you know, perhaps giving your life a little bit of a spiritual dimension if you think you need that, but not really there as, um, as active and present in one's life. This is the air we breathe. I think the way that the church must combat that is by providing a very different kind of environment. Uh, it's, it's important, yes, that we, we have, you know, apologetics ministries and that we are able to answer questions and help, help people in our churches understand not just what they believe, but why they believe what they believe. I have found that teenagers and young people tend to be very, uh, very open about very deep questions. And if we don't have answers to those questions, they will find them elsewhere. They will go elsewhere for them. So I think we do need to be prepared to, to walk with people through that process of them owning the faith for themselves. But I believe one of the main reasons that people leave the church, particularly in the college years, is because they, they went off to university or to college or continued their studies and then just dropped out of church while they were there. They didn't find a church. They were never connected to a local church. And it's the loss of that environment of being together with other believers who are praising the risen one every Sunday, losing that, that connection to what Leslie Newbigin called was the hermeneutic of the gospel, mm. the gospel on display in the public gathering and worship of a church. That is very, very, that's an effective way of making sure that we are, we continue to be connected to a, to a body of believers who, who shows us the plausibility of believing in Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen one. It's the loss of that, and the full immersion in a university or college experience where God is marginal or irrelevant, uh, it's the loss of that that often leads to a, 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 a very slow drifting away from the, the, the truths of Christianity. Some, some students come back, some do not. Um, but I think we've got to be very intentional about insisting that the church and the gathering with other believers and the connection to and the fellowship with other believers is not something that's optional to the Christian life. We will not remain Christian by our intellects alone, but by our communion with other believers. And I think it's important for us to recognize that if we are to stem the tide of those who leave the church. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable.
you talk there about um, people thinking that God is no longer relevant. He's he's irrelevant. Um, but you, you say in the thread of orthodoxy that it's not our job to make Christianity relevant, but to demonstrate Christianity's eternal relevance. How do you think we do that practically? How do, how do we demonstrate Christianity's eternal relevance, do you think? You know, I think one of the, the places where, where we can do this most easily is often in when when tragedy strikes in the lives of other people. Um, this idea of expressive individualism that you sort of look inside yourself to find yourself and then express yourself to the world and you gather around people that will affirm you and accept you as you are. And, 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 you know, if you want a little spiritual dimension, maybe you have some kind of a religious practice or some kind of uh, spiritual activity, wellness ritual, whatever it might be. That way of life is so plausible to people today, but it doesn't work in times of intense suffering. Uh, there's a sense in which we think that we're going to be happy by pursuing whatever it is that we desire the most. And sometimes you'll be walking along with neighbors, friends, maybe even family members who have adopted this way of thinking and this way of life. And it can be hard to to bring Christianity to bear with people who feel pretty much satisfied with that's really all they need in life. Uh, this way of life isn't, you, you often don't see the the the, the challenges and the holes in this way of life until suffering hits, until tragedy comes, it's unexpected, until you realize that you're pursuing these certain desires and yet they didn't bring happiness mm. like you thought they would, that maybe you you achieve some of the success that you wanted and then realize that you're still unhappy and unfulfilled. Um, I think as Christians, we've got to be ready to respond to that sense of disillusionment. Uh, we've got to wait for it. Sometimes you may be in a place where you have a conversation spiritually with someone one year and it really doesn't go anywhere, doesn't go very far. And you just continue to be a friend or a family member and continue to walk with that person. But then maybe in the next year or the next two years, after the loss of a job or after they've achieved a, a, of success and then and wound up not um, uh, uh, finding it to be satisfying or after the marriage falls apart or after, you know, there's a sudden death in the family that really rocks their world and they realize that their happiness was much more that their sense of happiness was much more uh, contingent than they had had anticipated. That's the time when when I think the the beauty and the goodness and the truth of Christianity can can really begin to land differently. And so I think we've got to often wait for those moments when you know the 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 car crashes, so to speak, and and then people are in need of of help. And so it's it's important for us to maintain relationships, to have relationships, to to show through our own lives the relevance of Christian teaching, uh, to, to not be hypocritical, but to be authentically Christian ourselves, uh, so that when those moments come and when people are reaching for something outside of themselves, we are there to, to, um, to, to have a message that breaks through some of that disillusionment and disappointment. Taking a slightly different tack now, how, how do you think we respond to some of the culture wars in the U.S.? You know, I think the culture wars are real and they have been with us for a long time and I think they will continue to be with us. And I don't, a lot of times we think of culture wars as, as merely something that is ginned up by the church on the right. I think culture wars really go both ways, both right and left and politics and whatnot. Um, the, the, that culture warring sensibility is, is part of just political back and forth and wrangling that we see. I think for the church, it's important to maintain a sense of prophetic distance from all of the, the most uh, uh, political battles that are going on. This doesn't mean that we're not involved. 
doesn't mean that we don't speak out. It doesn't mean that we don't vote. It doesn't even mean that Christians shouldn't campaign. But it means that the church has got to set culture wars in the context of a larger and greater cosmological war that we see described in the New Testament. The New Testament describes uh, the war ultimately not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities, the rulers of this, the darkness of this present age. Um, I think it's easy for us to villainize our neighbors, to, to make enemies out of our neighbors, or even if we do have legitimate enemies or opponents that are doing us harm, to forget the Lord's command to love our enemies means that the way that the war is fought is not in the way that the world fights a culture war, that we are called to exhibit and to display the fruit of the Spirit, no matter how much those culture wars are raging. So I think maintaining that element of prophetic distance, recognizing that we speak with a word that is transcendent and is not bound to the earthly squabbles and wars of our present time, is something that the church must continue to insist upon. Uh, when we are engaged politically, we must make sure that we are not only fighting for the right causes, but that we are fighting for them in the right ways, the ways that the scriptures lay out for us, that we don't adopt the same worldly tactics and same worldly perspectives as those around us. Uh, that is very difficult. It's very hard. Sometimes it seems impractical. Sometimes you wonder how you could possibly win a culture war using the uh, the the uh, of spiritual armor that Paul recommends for us. But we really have no choice if we are going to follow King Jesus in the way that he lays out for us. We've talked about orthodoxy. We've talked about evangelism. I suppose this kind of ties it all up nicely. How do you personally, Trevin Wax, know that Christianity is true? I think there are several ways of that. I think uh, it's, it's difficult to answer that question because uh, in, in one way, I answer the question saying, I know it's true because uh, uh, my, I, I'm convinced both in my mind and my heart, uh, convinced in my mind, because rationally, I believe there are good reasons to believe in the truthfulness of Christian claims about Jesus Christ and his resurrection. So, uh, there's, there are also reasonable arguments made, uh, throughout church history. You know, some of the, the classical arguments for the Christian faith, um, the teleological argument is one that holds particular persuasiveness with me, the, the way that things seem to be finely tuned for human existence. Um, Lewis's moral argument resonates with me. There are all sorts of reasonable reasons to believe in the, the, the truth claims of Christianity. Uh, but at the end of the day, I believe Christianity is true because Jesus, the truth, has captured my heart. I don't know that there's any way other than to be like Pilate. You can look at Jesus and say, what is truth? And not see truth himself mm. standing across from you. Um, or you can be like Peter, recognizing the truth of the one who is there, who when he asks you who he is, you say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. There's ultimately not a, a, a strong uh, uh, answer to the question of why I believe it's true other than that. Uh, the truth has captured me. The truth has pursued me, has overtaken me. Uh, it's, it's as much an answer of what God has done as much as it is a, an answer of what I may believe. As we finish off today's podcast, Trevin, if you could go back to sort of teenage Trevin Wax, is there anything that you would want to say to him, sort of learning everything that you've done along the way? Um, if you could go back and just say one piece of advice, is there anything that you'd want to say to him? No, I would, I think I would, I would tell my teenage self, 
Um, don't be too sure of your your own convictions on all sorts of matters that are not the essentials of Christianity too early, because there's a lot of good reasons to have a lot of good debates about a lot of a lot of aspects of of Christianity through the years that uh, different Christians of goodwill who submit to the scriptures have have had disagreements on. I think I would probably just want to remind myself as a teenager that just because you have come to a certain conviction, you've got to make sure that you leave room for other Christians who agree with the essentials of the Christian faith and yet have room to disagree on some of those secondary and tertiary issues. Um, It's really easy when you're young to assume that you've arrived at all of the truth really fast. And only years and decades of faithful study of God's word in community with other people who love Jesus and love his people, uh, that leads to a more fruitful reflection as to where, uh, you know, the, 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 the kind of generous Christianity that I think is at the heart of what it means for us to follow Christ, convinced in our own minds of all sorts of things we see in the scriptures, but then holding the, 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 uh, the, the extending the arm of fellowship uh, to to people who may, even in our own churches who may uh, disagree on some of the things that uh, that we find precious. That's such great advice for everyone, isn't it? Thank you so much for joining us, Trevor. Thank you for listening to Unapologetic with me, Ruth Jackson. As always, you can find out more about our guests through the links in today's show. Don't forget to head to our website, premierunbelievable.com to find more shows, articles and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you can get yourself a free ebook. Thank you for listening and see you next time. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.